As the Lord allows, we will take another step forward this afternoon in our teachings based out of Psalm 133 on the topic of looking for unity. I will give you first a subtitle for this teaching, Out of Balance or Out of Bounds. When it comes to the call to unity in this age of fallenness, there is certainly going to be a tension that we will have to recognize and work through. We who have a fundamental commitment to the Word of God, to the call to holiness, to the preservation of the truth, will discover in this age of fallenness that there's a tension between the interest to gather together with as many as we possibly can, over against the other concerns that we must be aware of that would hinder or restrict or make some forms of gathering not only inappropriate but actually sinful. But when we recognize that there is a tension that will always be present when we're within this age of fallenness, thankfully it will not be something we will experience for eternity, for the separation between those with whom we should gather and those with whom we should not gather will be a gap that Jesus says cannot be passed. So there'll be no possibility of some effort toward a bigger unity than whatever unity is the eternal state. But presently, when we bring up the topic of looking for unity... And when your heart is being encouraged to let the truth of God's Word open your aperture in terms of how you look into this issue, open your eyes, open your heart to see all that the Holy Spirit would have to say to us, and you're willing to do that, you necessarily also sense, as I'm saying, this this tension, because you realize that you can't just open your arms or open your church or open your life to just any form of unity that might be advocated. And that's what I'm in part addressing in today's study. And I'm addressing it, as I've already said, under the title of out of balance or out of bounds. Because my dear brothers and sisters, to bring that question to your attention is itself to manifest that there is a tension that we have to work through in order to make decisions about what is legitimate unity. Some things are simply out of bounds. Other things are out of balance, but not entirely out of bounds. And understanding how we work through the tension that those two categories represent is a matter of realizing that with our Heavenly Father, An unjust balance is an abomination on either side of the scale. Which is to say, when it comes to the quest for a greater unity, when it comes to responding to the beckoning of Psalm 133, that is saying, not just to those that are presently gathered, but to our hearts as it relates to our brothers and sisters in Christ elsewhere, and our hearts as it relates simply to the redemptive work that is possible that Jesus Christ would do. He came to save, 
He came to seek and save that which is lost. When we hear the beckoning and the language of how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, which is advocating that we seek that value, we strive to promote that as an objective, we must, as I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, when we are so frequently aware of the ways in which unity has been manifested in an unscriptural and in unhealthy ways, yet here again I want to emphasize that if you're out of balance on either side of the scale, it isn't right before God's eyes. If you are resisting ways in which unity could be promoted because you are responding to matters that are in the category of being out of balance and you're unwilling to work through that in how you seek unity in spite of the lack of balance, then you yourself are out of balance in your perception. Just as those who accept all sorts of things that should be viewed as being out of bounds, and they disregard things that are out of bounds, and they just promote unity for unity's sake, and you would see that, well, they're out of balance. They're not working through the tensions that this whole issue raises in a spiritually sensible way. Well, I have just given you somewhat of a preface set of remarks to the sorts of things we're going to investigate. One historian makes the following observation. Church history is, in fact, the story of the constant tension between quote-unquote orthodoxy and quote-unquote heresy, a tension which sometimes at least takes the form of the opposition between those who, when a choice has to be made, prefer unity to truth and those who prefer truth to unity. That is a very insightful analysis of church history. And it speaks to the reason for the manifest divisions that are so exceedingly represented within Christendom, so egregiously represented within Christendom. And the reason why I included the fact that orthodoxy and heresy are placed within quotations is because the author is making the point that what someone feels is orthodoxy isn't necessarily the last word about how God feels about this issue or that issue and whether this is a hill you're supposed to die on and you should have no fellowship with anyone who doesn't cross their T's and dot their I's just as you do. But people do have their sense of orthodoxy and they also have their sense of what is heresy. One of the problems that you encounter as you read church history, and in that it occurs in church history, it also makes the point that it is happening now as the present keeps coming at us, as it were, with such rapidity that we are not able to analyze what is happening in the moment. History affords the luxury of looking back and seeing things that have been completed and then thinking them through. You can't live in the future, and it's difficult 
to analyze the present without being informed from the past. So allow me to tell you something that has been true about church history as it relates to how we work into these categories of orthodoxy and heresy. Most histories, our church historian tells us, as we have already seen, is written from the orthodox standpoint. That is, they who, for right reasons or wrong reasons, have enough prominence just in where they are positioned or numerically, and they are self-describing themselves as the orthodox. I'm not questioning whether they are or aren't. I'm simply saying that church history manifests that there is a party that controls the narrative with respect to what is orthodoxy, and then they tell their stories from their vantage point, and they classify the, the divergent movements as heresy, and thereby automatically exclude them from the mainstream of Christian development. This has been more true of the Middle Ages in the West than of any other time and place in Christian history. Variety of thought within a fixed framework was permitted, which is to say, we allowed some things to be just a little bit out of balance, but we determined where those extremes lie. And if you get too far out of our predetermined extremes, then you will be dealt with as, for example, the Anabaptists were, you are heretics, according to the Orthodox. And so there was a real division within reformed-minded believers. And as a matter of fact, confessing Christians in one camp facilitated or otherwise participated in the actual execution of confessing believers in another camp. Any divergence beyond the permitted limit brought into play the coercive powers of both church and state. And since heresy was regarded as more dangerous to the individual and to the state than any natural plague, all methods were deemed legitimate for its destruction. Well, what I'm bringing to your attention is the need for us to realize that if this sort of behavior has been executed in the past, it, if it has been within the hearts of men and in their perceptions and in their outlook and in their operations, then I think we need to go back to John chapter 8 and let Jesus say, as he's looking in our eyes, you need to continue in the truth so the truth can set you free. And we best not say, Lord, we're the upper room Christian assembly. We weren't in bondage to any man. How do you know that you've heard the whole conversation from Jesus as to how to think about unity, as to how to not operate in this sort of mode where you are controlling the narrative of what is heresy and what is orthodoxy? And since you live that way, then is it not justifiable that the confessing church just down the road also operates in that mindset? And they look at you as if you're a heretic and you say, I'm not a heretic. I just don't do things exactly the same way you do. I'm not out of bounds. I might be out of balance in your perceptions, but should we divide because things are out of balance or should we only divide when things are out of bounds? That's a very important question. We have to distinguish between these things because an unjust balance is an abomination to the Lord on both sides of the scale. I give you the following 
remark from a text on ethics that helps us think through these matters. As a result of the fall, our author says the shalom of creation, the peace of creation has been shattered. All of nature is out of balance. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you're listening, make a mental note. Dear friends, before I read the remainder of this author's quotation, I want to underscore that simple observation. When it comes to the need to distinguish within the quest for a better unity between that which is out of balance over against that which is out of bounds, we've already established that church history manifests an oversensitivity for various party spirits to within themselves control the narrative of what is heterodoxy and what is orthodoxy, and they feel quite satisfied in making those parameters to the extent that, and I know it's extreme, but it has certainly happened in church history all too often, they control that so self-confidently that they have indeed put brothers and sisters who are true believers in Jesus to death. And I'm saying that instinct can manifest in other ways where you put the prospect of fellowship to death, where you put the opportunity to speak to another brother in a way that promotes unity over against division. You put it to death because you have this instinct of seeing all of the other in the framework of heresy. And perhaps what you're dealing with is the phenomena that things are out of balance. And I have a news flash for you. Since the fall, everything is out of balance. By definition, until it's redeemed from God. The shalom, the peace, the experience of finding someone who's just like you is not even in your home. It isn't actually in your church. Although you may have settled into some sort of relative peace because of a variety of no doubt legitimate influences, but some of them are relatively circumstantial. They are relatively not driven by self-conscious decisions. They just happen to be the way that things are. I continue to read this quotation. All of nature is out of balance, including our own moral compass. When people look to nature, and you must expand this reach of nature to not just the creation itself, but the natural perceptions of right and wrong that are within the human soul, the nature as it's represented by conscience. What we're referring to here is all the compasses by which we analyze life and deduce what is okay and what is not okay for me to be in agreement with. Whether it's the indications of natural history, the pointings of even nature itself in various directions in terms of metaphoric applications of natural phenomena, say, for example, in the garden, in the fruit trees, or in the stars, etc. But as I was stating also, the moral compass within, within our own sense of what is right and wrong, all of that is out of balance. Nature does not teach. Nature will verify any theological or metaphysical proposition. So writes C.S. Lewis. 
Now, I don't know if you caught that last distinction. What he's saying is the moral compass of the human heart, which includes your religious outlook, and the available other aspects of the natural realm, which is a legitimate way of capturing the domain that we're referring to here. It's the domain of all the information outside of looking at Jesus very attentively and letting Him say to you in the temple, I'm the light of the world. These religious leaders would have stoned that woman. I'm the light of the world. If you're starting to believe in me, you need to stay with it so that you can be liberated yourself and then become a liberator like me. And what Lewis is saying is he is making it vividly clear that these instincts that come to us from all kinds of directions, to the extent that they come from nature, our upbringing, our culture, our religious background, what we've read, how our mental framework operates, our instinctive discernment apparatus. He's saying those things will teach you anything. Meaning people are operating with that technology, that set of mechanisms all over the world and all throughout church history. And we're winding up with positions of orthodoxy and heresy being controlled by parochial groupings of various Christian churches, let's say, to keep it within the Christian faith. And that is a part of the explanation for why the divisions exist and multiply. I want to read to you a passage from Paul that certainly you have read before yourself. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul describes the given situation of the world. He says, This I say therefore, and I testify in the Lord, that you, believer, no longer walk as the world descriptively walks. This is the status of the world. Incidentally, this is the world into which you are to go and to become fishers of men and to seek and save that which is lost. And you don't need me to tell you that much of that world will be religiously orientated. So you're going into a world that is described in the following way. The world is vain in their minds. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. Their past feeling, they give themselves over to uncleanness. And in some cases, they do it with great energy and great interest, with greediness, as Paul says. Now he says to us in verse 20, you haven't learned Jesus in that way. That's not how Christianity sets life before you. It begins to redeem all of these features. You that sometimes were afar off are now made nigh by the blood of Christ. But I'm emphasizing in the interest of what we're talking about here, that that experience of being brought nearer to the Lord Jesus and being delivered out of the vanity of our own minds and the understanding of our own hearts that have been by nature darkened and all these other things that he expresses, what I'm trying to state to you is that's a, pro that's a process. And depending on how you align yourself in the tensions that are at the bottom 
of why unity just doesn't happen and blossom all on its own, the underlying orientation is, as I've already stated, some of us will champion unity over truth instinctively. Others will champion truth over unity. And what I'm saying then, therefore, is that our relative lack of understanding will manifest itself either in forms of illicit unity that is corrupting to the Christian church and cannot forward true brotherly advancement in the things of God. And if you're staying with Jesus, guiding you into all truth, then more and more you are perceiving ways in which you have been too lax and too much favoring the instinct to unity. But it can also be the case that historically, dispositionally, the way in which your life has been trained religiously, you champion the truth over unity. But what I'm saying is, you don't have a perfect read of that. You came out of a vain-oriented mind, a darkened mind, a life alienated from God. And if you are continuing in the truth, and you've been at this for any length of time, I would be surprised if it is not the case in your life that you realize there are things that I used to divide over among my brothers and sisters in Christ that I no longer feel it is appropriate to do. These were things that were not out of bounds. They were out of balance. They weren't a perfect understanding of the Word of God. Or maybe you yourself had to adjust. I'm going to present to you a few issues. Some of these we will take up specifically in future studies and talk about at least how this pastor believes that we should work through these particular tensions. And we will always be doing it in principle, under the motif of, is it out of bounds or is it out of balance? So, for example, the issue of the tension between hierarchy and leveling. We've touched on this in previous studies, and we will do so again in a subsequent study. But in order to help you track what I'm saying and why I'm saying it, I will state the following. Psalm 133 supports a hierarchical structure. The unity that Psalm 133 speaks of tells us that it is like the precious ointment upon the head that went down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, and then that went down to the skirts of his garment. It says it is like the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. I've referred to the basic hierarchical imagery that is presented there. I've said a number of things about that, the relevance of that idea. I've stated how even that hierarchical triangular image that starts broadly at the base and comes to a point, it points up to our triune God. It says, hierarchical, well, of course, He is Lord over all, and then He delegates His authority, and we are to observe the delegated authority and be under authority ourselves in order to exercise authority and many other arrangements. But there is an impulse and there's a version of unity-seeking that desires to level things, that argues that the hierarchical arrangement has resulted in abuse effects that consequently interrupt the possibilities of unity 
overbearing religious leaders, for example, that isolate God's people, that demand certain religious orientations, that shut down the possibility of union with other believers in Christ. And the fact of the matter is, is that's true. There's a tension here between top down and bottom up. Can things be too authoritarian? Yes. Can they be too quote unquote democratic or freewheeling? Yes. The tension between bishops and brotherhood. Should our ecclesiology be a matter of a man who's leading? Or should our ecclesiology be more of the commonality of brothers just conversing and discussing and coming to mutual understandings? Apart from letting Jesus teach us from his word how to think through these things responsibly and being open to having the aperture of our understanding widen, we could restrict the possibilities of real unity because we come with a preconceived list that settles the question of orthodoxy or heresy ahead of time. How about role, R-O-L-E, the role that someone ministers within, or placement, you might state, versus worth. Your position within the assembly is not a commentary on your worth. And then within unity in general, say, for example, in the home, if you're called to be in submission to your husband, that is not a comment of your relative worth. It is an understanding of how God has arranged things and recognizing you must observe the divine arrangement in order for unity to flow. How about this? Something we will, as the Lord allows, dig into to some extent. How about local unity? In other words, the unity of any given church. So if you're going to think about it as you're sitting right now, you'd be thinking about the need and the objective of unity within the Upper Room Christian Assembly. Local unity versus ecumenical unity. When I raise the terminology of ecumenical unity, I am in full sympathy with anyone who has a visceral, immediate, to some level reaction that you do want to stay away from ecumenical unity. And that is an accurate um, reflex because of the history behind ecumenical efforts. But first of all, the term itself is simply derived from a Greek word that means to effectively consider the entire world. Why do I say that? Well, when we're considering the entire world, we're considering our brothers and sisters in Christ wherever they might be. For starters, that at least we should be considering. We should also be considering all of humanity and what we can do about the divisions that exist to this day and moment within all of humanity. That's entirely legitimate. The eternal Logos took on flesh to do something about the divisions that exist in humanity. He broke down the middle wall of partition that was between us. And, and everything he did in his redemptive effort was to come down and to bring the elect into the sheepfold. And Paul says, I suffer all sorts of things. I travel all over the world. And I'll be saying something more about that in just a moment it occurs to me, so I'll save it. But I go through great effort to, to, to gather out of humanity the fish that belong in God's net. And so having an oikumenikos attitude about us, an ecumenical, a, an entire world 
Concern is one of those things, dear brothers and sisters, you have to be careful about just assigning into the category of heresy. You have to be more nuanced than that. You have to realize that there are some things that would fit into the effort to unify with other brothers and sisters in Christ that are indeed out of bounds. And much of it has been out of bounds. But not all of it. Some of it has been entirely critical to the life that you now live. Have you ever heard of the ecumenical councils? Depending on how you're working out the list and who you are, you'll either have four primary ecumenical councils or seven or 21. But take these four. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. The Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. The Council of Ephesus at 431 and the Council of Chalcedon at 451. All of these councils have been very critical within the development of Christian doctrine. And my simple point is, there was an undertaking that occurred at those various dates. I understand quite early in the church, but I suppose it's obvious to you that in some senses, what they were simply doing was following the pattern of Acts chapter 15. That was an ecumenical council. It was the gathering, I know it was mostly Jerusalem and Antioch, but it was the gathering of believers from different locations to understand what the entire church should do. And they sent out letters to all the churches. Now, all I'm saying to you initially here, I'm just saying, if you're just going to have an absolute heresy thought pattern in your brain, at least you have to put the brakes on before you come to Acts 15 because they did precisely that. And you might say that can never happen again. I don't debate that, that it can't happen that way again. But we're talking about, are we a bit too frosty at times? Building walls. Before I built a wall, I'd ask myself what I'm walling in and what I'm walling out and to whom I'm like to give offense. In other words, is it possible to get together with other confessing Christians and discuss matters of the word and seek some degree of unification in the interest of glorifying our Father in heaven? Now, if there is a sense of disorientation and the, and even the possibility of that, then you see it either comes from an attitude of, we already know what's right and wrong. We don't need to probe these things. You're off on some zealous venture. I don't know where you're going, but it's misguided. Obviously, you're a little young and zealous and you just need to grow up and face the facts that people just don't want to walk in the truth. That's perhaps the orientation. Or you may feel overwhelmed by the project. How would one ever do such a thing? And I would point you back, at least in principle, to last Sunday's teaching and and encourage you by saying, you know what? The truth can set you free. As the truth continues to come to your heart, you can understand how you can go about this subjective, responsibly, skillfully, in a God-honoring fashion, in a way that God himself favors and within which he will command the blessing. My question is, does anybody believe that God might command the blessing in a way that you presently don't experience if you would understand and open your heart to seek a better unity? The ecumenical councils 
if you are a well-thinking Christian, have been critical to your present theological understanding. And we call them ecumenical councils. I'm not trying to make some massive point out of that. I'm just trying to say that you have to be careful about just perpetuating narratives without any reflection of nuance. That's what keeps driving the divisions. Quick reactions without thought and nuance and wondering, is it out of balance or is it out of bounds? I don't know if you're aware of how the Eastern Church divided from the Western Church on a few issues, but take one on the date for what they call Easter, on the date for when you celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Now, we could be raising questions um, along those lines, but oh, I guess I should save some of these examples for other investigations. I'm supposed to just be probing at this time with different issues that we have to search the truth on. You say, well, I don't really feel like worrying be about between local unity and something more approximating ecumenical unity. You know, unity here, unity with other believers. I, I, I don't want to deal with that. I'm saying, no, you, that's not an option. Jesus is looking at you and saying, okay, you're a believer. Now continue in my word. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Maybe some of that freedom will manifest as a greater flow of unity that is God-honoring and good for your soul. How about household concerns? So we'll talk about the house of God. Concerns relative to the house of God. Like, how are we doing? Making sure that Sister Judith is okay and Sister Lois and Brother Stephen. I, for example, checked on dear Brother Joseph today, which is reaching out in a way that is a little different even than to you. Well, there's all kinds of hindrances out there because all of our lives are out of balance. So what are you going to do? Wait till somebody just tends to dot their I and cross their T just like you. And you will be able to relate to them in such a way that draws them in and commends the possibility of unity? Well, it'll never happen. Your church will become skeletonized. As we spoke last Sunday, you're, 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 you're getting so religiously rigid. You're in one form of understanding and, and you can't be flexible. That can't possibly be a person within which God can do what Jesus did when he came to this earth and lived and walked through the streets of Galilee and Palestine and in the temple and saw all sorts of things all the way up to the cross that were very egregious and wrong and yet he kept reaching out and reaching out and reaching out to seek and save that which is lost. I mean, there's a place for that. So I started to say household concerns over against social concerns. Now to raise even that idea in certain churches is to already get some degree of a reaction. And I'm aware that it generally falls into two different extremes. Some hear social concerns, and they're like, yes, that's where the church should be. It should be advocating social awareness and being more social-minded and out in the public square and, you know, all those sorts of things. That's what we... We should be a church that is very much tied into that sort of undertaking. You know, like in its most historic, quintessential, or shall I say, not so much quintessential, but stereotypical manifestation, at least to some minds. And I, and again, I recognize the legitimacy of this as I do with a certain 
categorization of the ecumenical movement, I understand the thinking. So I'm referring to the social gospel, which is still real, probably somewhat restricted in this strange season of COVID to some extent. But the social gospel and all the programs and plans and the inner city outreaches and, and even missionary, socially driven missionary efforts that bring medicine and education and so many other things. And, you know, are they really teaching them about Jesus and salvation and truth and seeing their lives brought into conformity with the word? In many cases, that's not what they're emphasizing. They're emphasizing social awareness and helping the downtrodden, the oppressed, and then they get into psychology, and it goes on and on and on, and it's what the church is involved with. But then to be others, as I'm saying, I forget which one I was describing, some love it, some know about the social gospel, and if they hear anything about that, they think, oh, I guess you're getting to be an old softy, and you're falling for some of the deceptions. I guess you're going to try anything to grow the church or whatever. But I don't think you can support that if you listen to the truth. I'll give you a few statements to make the point. The Apostle Paul writes to all believers in Galatians 6, and in verse 10, he says, as we therefore have opportunity. The Greek word behind opportunity is kairos. It's quite interesting. In fact, I would like to investigate other translations, and I did not do so to my recollection, and I wish I had thought of it, but it's the word for time. I'm not saying opportunity isn't within the exegetical domain, but the emphasis is that I'm trying to draw out of this. It's as down to earth and as day to day as how you spend your time, how you apply yourself in the day. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good onto what category first? Prospantas, to all. Just so you know, it's not gender specific. Not that it couldn't be. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? I'm just playing off of some of the sensitivities. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't say all men. Actually, it could. doesn't. It says to all. It is as complete as you could want language to represent. It says if you have the time, if you have the opportunity, it says do good first to all. Does anybody doubt that he means all? Or do you think it only means all believers in other churches or something like that? No, I think you need to continue reading, especially to them who are of the household of faith. And by the way, household of faith, oikeus, tes pistios, oikeus is from that same term where you get oikumenikos. Just an observation. It's the idea of the household of faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's still a household of faith. I don't doubt that you recognize that. And I'm not saying that we are under a divine obligation to make it the project of our lives to find our brothers and sisters wherever they happen to be and make sure that we invite them to our home on Sunday. I'm not saying that's our obligation. At the same time, there's something between an, a stated pressure obligation and a complete neglect and indifference. There's something in between there that allows some sort of purposefulness after all, the pilgrim feasts themselves. I understand it was the national situation. I understand it was different in certain details, but it's still a spiritual principle. And they would gather from all over Jerusalem to come together as the believing community. And it's in that context they said, you know, this is beautiful. So one way in which some of these efforts toward unity, which includes unity among believers, which, by the way, can have an effect upon the world because... 
Though this can be exaggerated, I still think it has application here when the world sees people, even if it's relatively small pockets. When I say people, I mean Christian peoples. Under the blessing of God, let's put it that way. But maybe to get to the blessing of God, you need to value unity wherever it is legitimate and can be sought out. And if that is something that God values, and I think I could argue this in all kinds of directions, that in principle, God values unity. Amen? And in principle, all of nature is massively out of balance. Okay, so over here, in principle, God values unity. Over here, in principle, or as a matter of fact, all of nature, everybody's moral compass, everybody's religious understanding, everything about society, everything about the generational graduation of influences that come, that accrue over time, everything in all of those domains is pushing things out of balance. So, we're done. We're cooked. Forget it. It's a waste of time. It's a fool's errand to seek unity. What you do is, by sheer chance, as a consequence of the rolling of the dice of time and geography and friend connections, connections of friends and so on, with a little bit of, you know, people's inclinations toward certain doctrines, I'm obviously reducing all of this, but to some extent I'm, I'm trying to say something, that, that the unity you arrive at is whatever the particular number is, of people that agree and think just like you. Pretty close. For some churches, that's exactly the way it is. And maybe they don't worry about if they're going to have a future or not. I think you should. I don't think you do anything to solve that problem. I've been teaching. This is the 11th study, you know? And we haven't invited the Pope yet. And we're not going to. But you hear what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say, I think you should be concerned about becoming a skeletonized, lifeless version of the church of Jesus Christ and ask yourself, why? Why isn't there more of a flow of God's blessing? Well, one place you can look is Psalm 133. It's not the only place, but maybe you might want to think about that. What's your idea of unity? What, what is that? How do, so I started to say, how about social concerns? You know, I know you can't have spiritual unity with the unbeliever. I understand that. Do you understand what I'm saying? But do you understand that History does record the efforts of many believers. Say, for example, George Mueller, which I guess I won't get to today, but I was at least possibly going to reference him. Do you know that George Mueller reached out into society to meet the needs of the poor orphans? And he did that purposefully. And he's like one among many, many people that looked out and said, I can't unify with you spiritually in the moment, but I can unify in the sense of I'm a human, you're a human, you have needs, I am touched with compassion about your needs, and as a church, we want to be aware of that, and we want to have a ministry in that direction under God's guidance. And that that's a form of seeking unity, because it's seeking connectedness at the level that you can presently reach with hopes that through this ministry, a true brotherly unity will ultimately occur, and it often will. And then you will see more and more brothers Dwelling together in unity. Well, I gave you Galatians 6.10. I won't re-read that. I want to establish that there is a biblical concept of without and within. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, What have I to do to judge them also that are without? 
Do not you judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judges. Now we could make a number of true and relevant observations about this text. I'll just limit myself to the remark that, yes, Paul and we do as well fully acknowledge we stress that it is critical that we are aware that there is a without and there is a within. That is a knowledge that we must have established in our hearts to do our ministry well. But his attitude when he says, what do I have to do to judge them that are without? When I read you a few other texts, and you should already know from Galatians 6.10, he's not looking at those that are, are, that are without with with a, a dismissiveness, with a causticness, with a, with an arrogance, with a pharisaical disposition, like say the Pharisees did with the woman caught in adultery. Do you understand? They're just there to pull forward as props so we can compare ourselves with them and say we're not like them and they don't believe in Jesus. That's why they're so messed up. Well, they don't believe in Jesus because you haven't told them about Jesus, perhaps. You know what I'm saying? And part, of what you should hear when he says God judges those that are without, is to tell you, you don't have to. At some level, it's not your job to judge them. It's your job to minister to them. Now, does that require discernment and, and being wise as serpent and harmless as doves and a whole range of things? Yes, yes, yes and yes and yes. But it also requires if you're going to have a balance, because an unjust balance is an abomination to God on both sides of the scale. You're also going to have to start being able to work with the idea of what is out of order, out of balance, and what is out of bounds. What is forbidden for me to either interact with or to countenance? In other words, is this woman that was caught in the very act of adultery, is this a situation that is out of balance, it's chaotic, it's messed up, you got what I'm saying? It's spinning like a whirling dervish, it's a messed up life. It's out of balance, but it could be ministered to. And that's why I'm here. Or, as the Pharisees thought it was, it's out of bounds. All we do is throw stones on it. We've determined it is heresy. And we feel so confident in how religion should think about this that we really believe we have a gotcha moment for Jesus and his little assembly. We're going to bring this woman into the midst of this assembly and we're going to disrupt it. But that's not what happened. The light of the world who shows us and illuminates our understanding about things that our little restricted hearts can't quite capture apart from teaching. Paul says to the Colossians, walk in wisdom to them that are without, redeeming the time, which certainly includes realizing what their situation is and making good use of your opportunities and bring wisdom. And he says, let your speech be always with grace. The assumption here, the mentality from the Apostle Paul is that the Colossian believers should be out there dealing with social concerns. What's going on around you? Which in his day, maybe some people would argue was relatively undeveloped. That could be a prejudice that you have. You know, it could be an ill-informed presupposition or mental framework, you know, you think, well, Paul wouldn't have gotten involved in social issues because that's, you know, not like we're thinking today. He wouldn't have gotten involved in any social issues. 
But what are you talking about? What is this? Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. There you are. You're in the social issues right there. And you think you understand what that looks like. Well, go to Acts chapter 17. I'm not saying go there now. It's not even in my notes. I'm thinking of it as I'm speaking to you. Go to Acts chapter 17 in the Areopagus, otherwise known as Mars Hill. You follow what I'm talking about? And Paul there is addressing very truthfully and more pointedly than many manifestations of this concept. He's addressing the public square. He's addressing the social arrangement of things as it presently is. And he did this everywhere he went. Do you know that a qualification for an elder, for a man to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, he has to have a good report of them that are without. Well, that's an interesting concept that, again, we can't fully engage with this afternoon, but it means something. And, and I'm saying there's an awareness that God is bringing to our attention in these qualifications for ministry that there needs to be a connection. There's a given connection between the church and the society and the culture that it finds itself within. There to be the light of the world. The way in which the culture around you might be out of balance in terms of how they relate to each other or don't relate to each other. You know, some of you are old enough to either have experienced or know the stories that are along these lines. And maybe some people who hear these teachings where you live, you still more or less have this experience where you got to know your neighbors, where there was a lot of friendliness and you got together, you know, you saw each other at the market and and you greeted each other and you knew each other's names and you were concerned about how Mr. Jones or Mr. McGuire was doing, you know, or, or Mrs. Smith, those sorts of things. And what I'm just trying to say is, yes, in this out-of-balance world that we come out of, there may not be the kind of relationship between where you're located and the people around you. In other words, you might be like a virtual island in your spot. But I'm saying the Bible is putting forth a different way of experiencing life. It is saying that an elder has to have a good report from those that are without. That is the community, because that church is going to influence that community, and they're supposed to minister to it, and there's a, there's a relationship there that's purposeful. Our brother read it today in John chapter 17. I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving you in the unordered cosmos, which is a contradiction, at least in basic ideas, but, but, but God is, God is doing something about that. And you're supposed to be showing the world that your life is at least relatively more ordered. And that's the key thing. We're relatively more ordered and we got there gradually by bringing things that were out of balance into better balance. And thank God that we weren't always dealt with when we were out of balance and just told, you're out of bounds. Get out. I don't want to talk to you. Now, I have to confess I've done that in ways. I hopefully not habitually, but I'll confess and I repent before my Father in heaven that I've done that at times. I've reacted to things that were out of balance and I had that orthodoxy heresy division within my heart, which is necessary at points, but I wasn't working well with this at points in my life, and it brings division. I guess I'm going to need to close here, and so we'll take up the topic again next time.
we gather together, but a couple of passages first. I never let you off that quickly, you know that. Another passage from Paul, and then some seminal passages from James, just a couple, but because they come from the book of James, which is the first book that the Holy Spirit inspired for the churches. It is a basic orient, orienting message from God to the churches. I will end with that, and I hope it makes an impact in your soul. But as it relates to Paul, I've been giving you texts from Paul about when you have an opportunity, do good to everybody. That means it's okay if you know what you're doing to even reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ that don't dot their I's and cross their T's the same way you do and do good to them. There's so much to say, which is why we're teaching, so I won't try to say it all now. This St. Paul, you know the passage? I'll summarize it for you. It's in 1 Corinthians 9. It starts in verse 20. He says, I became a Jew. He said, I became under the law. He said, I became as without law. He said, I became as the weak. He finishes up saying, I became all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. And this I do, not in contradiction to the Bible, this I do, not in an antichrist motivated spirit, this I do in a Christian spirit, for the gospel's sake. And he even says this, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Oh, the possibilities of the import of what he's saying there, I think are rich. I think it might display a certain perspective that maybe he wants to advocate for the Corinthians that were highly divided, you might remember. I'm a Paul, I'm a prophet of, of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. I've got my little party. We could give you other examples of the divisions, but what I think Paul is saying is, I imbibe this outlook, this orientation, this calling within my spirit to reach out and to seek unity at what level you can, even if it's just a, a text or a phone call or, or just an availability or just a hi, how are you when you're walking down the street as opposed to not even saying anything or, or, or calling somebody up and having a cup of coffee with them to discuss the Bible because they're a believer too and see where this might go or maybe having a Bible study as we have over the years, as you know, and, and, and we will continue to do things like that. So I'm saying we've been attempting these things. This isn't all brand new, but what I'm saying is, purposely implementing things to try to draw others to what you at least believe is the truth and listen to them as well. And let's go to the word ecumenically, if you will. I'm kind of kidding, but let's go to the word together and discuss it around a table. What does the Bible say here? And then decide what's out of balance and what's out of bounds. And there's a lot of things to say, but I'm just saying Paul, I think, is saying, I have this way of life, being made all things to all men, being sensitive and not overly dividing, in fact, breaking down the divisions to the extent that I can, to gain the opportunity to win somebody, instead of just registering where you think they're wrong the first moment you get. And I think he's saying, because I hope I get saved. I want to be a partaker of the gospel, because that's what the gospel is about. Understand what I'm saying? He's saying, this objective, this work that I just described to you, it's a work that is the gospel's work. And anybody who participates in that is doing gospel work. And he is saying, not only is it right that I do this, it's necessary. I want to make sure 
that I'm not an isolated little religious entity running around with my now right ideas after my Damascus experience when I was totally out of balance and even out of bounds, sending believers to their death, thinking I was doing God's service. And he is saying, I want to make sure that I'm a partaker of this beautiful, open invitation. Come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that motivates Paul to do likewise. Here's the book of James, a couple passages we won't do too much with right now. James, the epistle was written somewhere between 45 and 48 AD. That's 10, 15 years into the Christian faith flowing out of Jerusalem and elsewhere. And James says in chapter 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world? I'm reading the ESV, reading out of the ESV. To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. What poor man? The poor man in the church? Not necessarily, not only, not not specifically. No, he just said, my brothers, hasn't God chosen the poor? And that's the reason why I use the ESV. I don't want to get into the textual variant between the genitive and the dative case. I don't want to digress into this right now. I just want you to see some other interpreters thought it should be interpreted this way. And I'm saying it's true enough one way or the other, because the other parts of James supports this, which I will get to in a moment. What I'm saying is, he's saying God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith, to be rich in faith, to be made rich in faith. In other words, there's something here about a social situation that God is aware of, that relatively speaking, it can be said, God chooses, chooses the base, the despised, the ignoble, the poor of the world to make them rich in faith. And James is calling the church's attention in an issue of where they would possibly favor a rich person entering into their meeting, as the text says, gold-fingered and well-attired, they might favor him over against a poor person. And James makes the case from a social awareness perspective. It's right there in your Bible. He says, God, don't you see, brothers, God chooses the poor in the world. There's all kinds of texts for this, by the way, in the Bible. There's all kinds of texts for this. To be rich in faith. He says, you have dishonored the poor man. You look down on the poor man. You don't pay attention to the poor man, which stands for not just the lacking, those that are lacking finances, but those that are poor and, and all poor in their understanding, poor in their behavioral patterns, poor in their habits. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying they have some redemptive value in their poverty. I'm just saying there is a social awareness in the Bible that God favors the fatherless and the orphans and the widows and the downtrodden and and he stands against the proud and the noble as he says are not the rich ones those who oppress you and drag you in the court he's saying why are you showing this favoritism it is in contradistinction to the value system that is relatively represented by god in the social sphere and that is entirely accurate and still the case it is the wealthy 
for the most part who are the oppressors. I understand you could say, well, if the poor gained that kind of financial status, they would be oppressors too. That's a different story. That's also true. But when he says go out in the highways and the byways, go out into the alleys and compel them to come in, that's consistent with what I'm saying. And James, in the first chapter, verse 27, he says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. It's not just the fatherless and the widows in your church. I'm showing to you as we finished this message and we were presenting to you various tensions that you have to think about when you're thinking about what should unity look like? How should we go about seeking a better unity? Maybe we're not open enough or conscious enough or concerned enough about even the social situations that are around us. Maybe we should be addressing that and have a plan for that. Do something about that. Pray about it. Whatever. Join with other Christians if they're not out of bounds. Or maybe you don't think we can. But I'm bringing the idea before you, recognizing there's a tension, a tension between these things. And I'm closing, and I hope you find it convincing from the Word of God. I don't think I am twisting the Scriptures to anybody's destruction. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to be socially aware of where you are as believers. You have the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You should have inner strength. I know where where works in progress and we have to come apart and rest and can't take on more than we should, but we're talking to the church of Jesus Christ, not one person. We're saying, what does the church of Jesus Christ do as a body, as a as a group of believers, and does the Holy Spirit say, separate unto me Leslie and Judith to do this or that, you know, in the interest of the church's outreach? The next thing you know, it's not just Leslie and Judith, but it's the Joanne that they met, and it's the Sally, and it's Sally's boyfriend, Fred, and, and you're talking to them over tea, and, and uh, you say, oh, this is all just imaginary. Well, it is if God doesn't bless. I totally agree with that, but Are you prepared to not let God speak to us about all the truth? This perspective on the relation of Jesus and his movement to social realities within the environment that the church is situated has considerable potential for illuminating the epistle of James. You say, well, we're supposed to be separate from the world. Oh yeah, it'll get to that. (laughs) Just don't worry. It's okay. Calm down. Don't get nervous. Stay separate from the world. Like not just separate. Don't even get spotted by the world. But there's a strength in Christ if you'll grow into it and if the church will model it and train. You say, it's risky. Oh, so that's a good reason to just shut the whole thing down because there's a risk? The eternal law of us took on flesh, brothers and sisters, and lived a human life and was tempted in every way. He took a risk, if you want to put it that way. I'm not trying to build a Christology by that remark, but I'm saying he had to stay true to his father and he stood up at nights. He, he was up at nights with strong tears and crying at times to overcome. Look in the Garden of Gethsemane if you don't think anywhere else. Do you want to, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, there's a risk. 
But what's the risk of disobeying God? What's the risk of saying, we don't, we don't need, brother, we don't need to be freed up in this way. We're, I already, I already read my Bible. We, we already have a church. Why don't you just leave it the way it is? For the same reason that we've been gathering for years and years and years, because Jesus is the head of his church, not us. And it's our obligation as believers to continue in his word so that we will know all the truth and the truth will set us free to do whatever the Holy Spirit leads us to do. Nothing more and nothing less. But I do think James brings a perspective very early into the church that deserves our attention. Well, may the Lord bless this message to your hearts and may the ensuing messages continue to bring understanding and full balance to what it is to look for unity.